Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEF Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with authors with new books in the field. We're joined today by Sarah Persley of the Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies and History Departments of New York University, and she's the author of the new book, Familiar Futures, Time, Selfhood, and Sovereignty in Iraq, published last year by Stanford University Press. Uh, Sarah, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so, for having me. So tell us about the book. Um, what, what did you set out to do when you wrote this book? And you, what, what do you think is the major contribution that you're making? The book is mainly about uh, the role of gender and family reform projects to um, um, ideas uh, of modernization and economic development in Iraq uh, from the 1920s up to the first Ba'ath coup of 1963, uh, focusing especially on the revolutionary uh, period between the Iraqi Revolution of 1958 and the 1963 Ba'ath coup. So I really wanted to think um, through how gender and family reform projects played into uh, broader ideas about revolution, development, um, modernization, and the future, ideas about the future. It's a really fascinating uh, uh, kind of juxtaposition of different concepts, uh, development, time in the future, uh, psychology, um, mm. and, uh, you know, kind of along with, uh, you know, more conventional history and the reading of archives and that sort of thing. How did you go about approaching this? Uh, what, how did you conceptualize this as, uh, as a way to get into Iraqi history? Well, I started out, I mean, it came out of my dissertation, um, and I st it actually started out as a project focused on the Iraqi personal status law of 1959, which was a law passed after the revolution um, that brought family law under the control of, of the secular state for the first time in Iraq's history um, and unified law for Iraqi uh, Muslims. Christians and Jews were exempted from the law. Um, and I was interested in it because many people had, uh, many scholars, historians and others, had seen this law as an important factor in the success of the first Ba'ath coup of 1963. Because one thing the Ba'ath party did is they, they brought together Shia and Sunni religious authorities under this banner of Arab nationalism in opposition to one particular clause of the personal status law, which was a clause equalizing inheritance between male and female heirs. It was very right. controversial. Um, so that was, you know, historians had often said this, you know, in a list of factors leading to the success of the coup, this equal inheritance clause of the 1959 personal status law was one factor. But no one, um, very few people had actually discussed the law in any kind of detail. So I was interested in that um, sort of paradox that this law was seen as really important to the rise of the bath in Iraq, which is pretty mm -hmm. important. And on the other hand, um, very little attention had been focused on it, especially by historians. Um, of the revolutionary era. So that's where it started, um, is thinking about, you know, why, how did gender and family reform become, um, you know, conflicts over gender and family reform become so central during this revolutionary era? Um, and, you know, sort of as a, a sub-question, why have historians or scholars not been more interested in this um, question? So in some ways, you know, it was, a, it was an engagement in, in what a lot of people have seen as the failure of the 1958 revolution. You know, what went wrong to lead to the 1963 bath, right. to, to put it kind of uh, crudely. Um, that was my initial um, interest. Um, from there, you know, I really got interested in what um, had not been considered at all, which was the fact that in this law, the Equal Inheritance Clause was, was indeed very controversial, and there was a lot of things written about it in this period. But every other aspect of this law, um, there was a... Uh, it was not a consensus, but there was widespread agreement on the rest of the law, especially among, um, I mean, state authorities, feminists, communists, Baathists, Arab nationalists, Sunni religious authorities. They all agreed on the importance of a national family law under the control of the state. The exception was the Shia 
uh, religious clerics who had a broader critique um, of the law. So then I became interested in, you know, sort of what was this kind of um, agreement, general agreement among many different uh, players in Iraq around the need for gender and family reform, um, and then how to think about that um, in relation to the very serious conflict over one aspect of the law. So that's where the original impetus came from, from the whole, for the whole book. Well, it was absolutely fascinating to me the way that this, the, the, these competing concepts of the family run through so many of these controversies. Uh, the formation of these so-called modernist or modern, you know, modernized uh, forms of the family. Um, and you really do a fascinating job of linking that up to the big political debates about identity and territory and sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, that, so that was the sort of interest that came, you know, once I really got into the archives and started looking at some of these questions, um, you know, I had kind of come out of this tradition of gender, uh, you know, gender history in the Middle East. You know, my advisor was Beth Barron, um, and I had really been steeped in the scholarship on gender reform that really, I, I didn't even really think that much about this until I got into the archives, but that literature really focuses on an earlier time period, right? The, the turn mm -hmm. of the 20th century up to the, the end of the interwar period, all the scholarship on domesticity and its relation to nationalist movements and so on. Um, but for the 1950s, the discourses were really different. You know, they were really focused on economic development as the basis for, um, for full you know, political and economic sovereignty. So we get different terms, different concepts, um, really playing a more important role, and also much more of an emphasis on uh, uh, poor families. I mean, peasant families and urban working class families and how those could be reformed to produce um, workers, you know, uh, workers and sort of loyal subjects of, um, of the regime. And preferably not people who are going to be politically mobilized towards the left. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's a theme that definitely runs through a lot of the chapters. Um, so one thing I'm interested in with this, with this interest in time and temporality is, is sort of the paradoxes of these future-oriented concepts of time, right? We have to reform women and the family um, in the name name of this sort of universal modern future. It's a very familiar discourse. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other hand, um, the ways in which that apparently future-oriented discourse often gets mobilized for uh, um, projects that in reality are about kind of instituting political stasis, right? So we can't have too much political change. Uh, we certainly can't have, you know, uh, communist movements. We can't have uh, uh, peasants going to the cities and, and joining the communist movement. We need to fix them in family farms out in the countryside. I have a chapter about that. Um, we, uh, you know, after the revolution, we can't have democracy until we have economic development. You know, that's a theme that runs through mm -hmm. um, the whole history of post-58 and even, um, even pre-58 in some ways. Um, so I got really interested in that kind of paradox. And, and, and I argue that gender reform and social reform more broadly, but women were really central to social reform, broadly understood, became really central to kind of maintaining um, that tension between this future-oriented um, imaginary and desire and this very sort of uh, static uh, reproducing the present political system um, in practice. So one of the one of the aspects of that that I just found uh, especially interesting was the entire discussion about girls education. Mm -hmm. um, walk us through that a little bit, uh, how the, the, the different arguments and discourses over educating girls um, kind of that, you know, goes together with all of this. Yes, absolutely does. Um, so this is one of the things that caused me to, to move the time period back from the revolutionary period to the earlier period. Um, and I focus especially in the chapter on education on the, uh, well, it's the 1930s to the 1950s, but I start in the 1930s um, uh, when a team of American experts came to Iraq. It was called the Monroe Commission. It's a very it's famous. Extraordinary. 
It's a very, yeah, it's a very famous event in Iraqi history. The Monroe Report that this commission produced is, is really widely used in Iraqi um, scholarship. It was debated in Iraq itself for decades after it was um, written in 1932. Um, and so basically what these American experts who came to Iraq, and they were sort of steeped in sort of Dewey sounding fragmentist language of education for real life. They were also drawing on segregated schooling projects from the, from the South of how to educate black youth into uh, manual labor. That was kind of their two, the traditions they were coming from. And they basically argued two things. Uh, they criticized the Iraqi um, uh, school system for not differentiating enough between girls and boys education on the one hand and urban and rural education on the other hand. So they said, no, you're, you're doing everything wrong. You're teaching girls and boys the same curriculum, which Iraq was officially before 1932. You need to be teaching girls home economics, which of course at this time was a required field in American, all American public schools for girls. Um, so they really, and, and the Iraqi officials implemented that. So over the course of several decades, they implemented more and more requirements for girls in public schools to study mandatory home economics classes, you know, in the name of economic development and modernization. At the same time, and these, these proposals were not implemented as consistently, but they also argued that rural boys should focus on agricultural education, right, manual education. Exact same argument they were making in the U.S. for black youth in the South. Um, so, you know, it's very controversial here, and it was also controversial in Iraq, um, this proposal. The proposals for girls' education were less controversial. You point yes, out they, they take this all over the world, too. And absolutely. In fact, they come to Iraq. This is one of the problems with the fact that Iraq historians have, have drawn in the Monroe Report as this, like, um, descript, you know, descriptive description of Iraq schools in 1932, when if you read it in comparison to reports these same experts had written on, you know, the Philippines, on China, on um, mm -hmm. countries all around the world, they're, they're describing these schools almost identically everywhere. So we really can't read this report as a description of the Iraqi education system in this kind of straightforward way. So exactly, they were, they were drawing on their own experience in other countries and pushing for manual education um, for for most boys in Iraq schools and for uh, home, home economics for girls. So again, I'm making this argument that um, this, this, this very future-oriented discourse, right, the point of teaching girls home economics was so they could build a future, right, so Iraq could modernize. Because of course, everyone knows girls already know, you know, women already know how to, how to raise children and cook and clean, they're in their home, but they're doing it wrong, right? So the point was to train them to do it in a right way in order to create a modern country. So there's this future-oriented modern discourse at the same time that there's this um, uh, you know very sort of um, idea that you need to fix Iraqis in place fix rural boys in rural areas fix mm -hmm. girls in the home um, so this is exactly the kind of paradox that I'm interested in throughout the book it's this future-oriented discourse that is actually fixing people in um, certain um, you know social and spatial uh, domains and and disabling in lots of ways political mobilization because again as you already pointed or mentioned you know this too this education system uh, education reforms too was very much targeting um, the spread of communism in Iraq schools so that is a theme that, that keeps coming up <laughs> so it is about political demobilization and about sort of social and spatial um, uh, fixity but it's interesting, there's also the, the sub-theme that you came back to, including through Ali al-Wardi, which I hadn't realized before, about how there was also this con concern about rampant homosexuality and the need to kind of mm -hmm. fix the monogamous family as, uh, as this anchor of modernization and development. Yes, correct. And that's a discourse that partly, um, you know, I mean, that's, I look at that really back, uh, you know, in the British mandate period, it's definitely a British discourse, although they're using it in a different way. Mm -hmm. For the British, you know, homosexuality uh, was rampant in Iraq, according to the British, and it was a sign of backwardness. Again, this is not specific to Iraq. This was British course, colonial discourse in many places. Um, you know, a properly modern um, society, uh, one of the markers of a modern society was that men and women 
are properly masculine and feminine, right? There's this modern uh, uh, femininity and masculinity, um, which also implies heterosexuality. Um, so there was that discourse from the British, but for the British, they weren't, you know, one of the arguments I make in that chapter one is the British were not actually trying to change that situation. <laughs> they were just using that as an argument for why they needed to rule Iraq, because Iraq could not rule itself. Once we get, um, you know, Satya al-Hasri, who was the Director General of Education in the 1920s, and then later Iraqi reformers like the pragmatists drawing on US um, education models, um, they are much more interested in uh, sort of producing this new kind of family, um, uh, actually Hosri less than the later ones. Um, and then, yes, then we very much get into this idea of, um, of uh, homosexuality is an index of backwardness. We need to produce proper masculinity and femininity by producing, um, uh, um, you know, heterosexual, nuclear, uh, monogamous uh, families. A word to you, I'll just say, and as an aside, he's actually a complicated figure here because he's, um, you know, he very much, uh, you know, he made one of the most explicit arguments about this. Um, but in the same, you know, I just want to actually mention that he actually, mm -hmm. uh, in the 1950s, is making this argument that he says, I'm, you know, when I say homosexuality is rampant in Iraq and it's a sign of backwardness, I'm not talking about true homosexuals. He's like, there's some percentage of the population who are true homosexuals. Those people have a right to live the way they want to live. We shouldn't be bothering them, you know, but I'm talking about um, sort of this larger problem of people who are actually heterosexuals <laughs> behaving homosexually because we're not modern enough. So it's actually a more complex argument um, than many people realize. Um, and in some ways he was ahead of his time in the 1950s, um, uh, pushing for the actual rights to be protected of what he called real homosexuals. Um, but he's also making this you know, argument that links homosexuality on a society-wide level to backwardness. And, and let's just stick with uh, Satya al-Husri for a moment, because it, it's also interesting the way that you have uh, you know, one of these you know, leading theorists of, of pan-Arabism in charge of Iraqi education for so long, and, yeah. like, and the way that he tries to balance uh, the, the kind of Arab nationalism with Iraqi nationalism in the educational curriculum, it, to me, it was quite interesting. Yes. So I'm making, you know, this was, it was interesting for me too, because what I found, you know, when I really started reading his writings and reading the curriculum that he um, had, a, you know, was really instrumental in producing um, was in a lot of the scholarship, I think the divide between the Iraqi nationalism and Arab nationalism has been misrepresented and Hosuri's ideas have been misrepresented in relation to this. Um, Cause you know, he's seen, and he was, and he's definitely a philosopher of Arab nationalism, you know, one of the major ones, if not the major one in the 1920s, but um, he, you know, very much, uh, you know, partly because he thought Iraq, you know, the creation of a sovereign Iraqi nation state was one of the prerequisites for creating a future Arab nation state. So that was so, in one sense, it's just a temporal argument. So right. he was very much about um, Iraqi nationalism in the present, and we need to inculcate Iraqi nationalism in the schools uh, at the same time that we're inculcating this broader Arab um, kind of identity. Um, so I'm partly saying that uh, this divide between Iraqi nationalism and Arab nationalism you know, which was very, very, very salient in the 1950s, and especially around 58, the revolution, it's been written back in time a little bit, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, in ways that don't really work. When you really start looking at the 1920s and 1930s, uh, many people, including Al-Husri, didn't really see these as contradictory um, ideas. And I'm also arguing that, um, relatedly, that Arab nat Arabism, I would call it, was really actually important for the formation of an Iraqi nation state. You know, so like many other scholars, I'm, you know, I'm kind of trying to rethink the relationship between Arab nationalism and the so-called territorial nationalisms in this period. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Iraq was constructed by the British and then by people like Al-Husri and then, you know, by the later uh, independent Iraqi officials. Iraq was constructed and imagined as an Arab state, right? So it had to do with this idea that comes out of the end of World War I and the League of Nations and the Treaty of Lausanne 
that every nation state has a majority race and then minority races. So constructing Iraq as an Arab state, which of course is very problematic for its very large non-Arab minorities, um, was part of that whole process. So we can't just see these as contradictory, Arabism and Iraqi nationalism. They actually were working together um, in the production of Iraq as a, as a state that is imagined to be an Arab state. And producing that state within particular borders and with a particular conception of people, there's this, you have this interesting juxtaposition of the notion of it being created and developed, but also being eternal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I really, I think I developed that most in the chapter on the revolution or one of the mm -hmm. chapters on the revolution um, where we get this discourse from, uh, from Qasem, the prime minister and the, you know, the military leader of the coup of 58, the revolution of 58. Um, where he refers to Iraq, you know, on a regular basis, uh, the, the eternal Iraqi state. Um, and um, so, well, now I got a little lost about the question. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> no, no, it's just a fascinating juxtaposition as you're thinking about this in developmental terms is you're simultaneously trying to create and produce this, this new Iraq mm. while at the same time asserting this eternal Iraqiness. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a nifty political trick. <laughs> yeah, and what you know, partly this is related to the personal status log, the thing that I started with, and that is still the focus of I think it's chapter seven. Um, you know, one thing I really got interested in, uh, I mean, sort of a segue from this, is the ways in which this idea of a static state, right? We create a static state and a, a more or less static law, this personal status law, which ends at Iraq borders, right? That's, the, that's part of the point of making a personal status law under the control of the state is it's now mm -hmm. it's very bordered, part of this bordered sovereign territory, right? That this law now applies to. Um, and some of the critics um, of the law from a Shia perspective, the Shia clerics, and there were some interesting actually Shia lay activists also criticizing the law. Um, but one of the one of the critiques that the the clerics made is that in you know historically in Islamic law you know the, the law is not bounded territorially in the same way that a modern state is and so um, uh, so for example Shia um, uh, lay people you know can choose who they want their leading mujtahid to be right. Right? And so, so it's a democratic process, and it's a law that changes based on the time and the place. Whereas the personal status law, now that it's under control of the secular state, is this fixed law. It's bound, mm -hmm. it's bound in time, and it's bound in place. So there are actually some interesting arguments related to both time and space, um, and this idea of the fixity and eternal nature of the modern state that I thought was interesting. Well, so since now that we're in that kind of the, the Qasim period, um, why don't we stick with that for a little bit? Um, you know, the, you, you come at the, um, the, the, this Women's March of 1959 several times from several different perspectives. Tell mm -hmm. us about this, this, this march and why it's so important in your narrative. Um, I thought it was, a, you know, so, so it's the Women's March in Baghdad in, um, in uh, 1959, as you said. And, you know, partly I was interested in the discourse of the, the march that happens um, uh, well, okay, so first of all, the march itself was, you know, it was, it was led by communist women because communist women were um, the main women, the main Iraqi feminist organization or women's organization this time was called the League for the Defense of Women's Rights. And it came directly out of the Communist Party. It was originally kind of the women's, you know, popular front of the Communist Party. Um, eventually it splits off and it becomes like the Iraqi uh, women's movement. Um, so, but at this time, you know, it was, it was mainly, it was led by communists and most of the members were at least sympathetic to um, communism. And definitely they were following the, the line of the Iraqi Communist Party. So this, this uh, march, you know, these women were demanding basically the execution of 
those who are seen as traitors to the revolution, right? Sort of agents of the time gone by. This expression was often used to refer to the monarchical period. Um, so it's this very kind of violent, uh, vengeful language that, uh, that the women are using, just like any other communist organization is using at this mm -hmm. time of, you know, we need to execute the, um, uh, the traitors of the revolution. So what's interesting to me it was how within, now I forget the exact time frame, but within like a month or two, um, this march has been completely rewritten um, mm -hmm. to sort of downplay this, this kind of violent, vengeful language, um, and to play it up as a sign of Iraq's modernity, right? So we get the Ministry of Development in Iraq, um, announcing this and sort of sending out press releases to, to like English language, you know, magazines in Britain and so on. First march about of how, kind in the history yeah, of the Arab peoples. Exactly. And even the communists within six months are, are producing the same kind of discourse. Um, I think that, I think the quote you just said was directly from the communist part, mm -hmm. uh, newspaper. The first, right, the first demonstration of its kind in the history of the whole Arab people. So it's very kind of dramatic um, language. So partly I just want to use this as a example of how central this idea of, um, of women's modernity and women's entry into the public sphere and kind of creating this properly modern woman who was engaged in social reform projects, how central that was, this, you know, these ideas about the future and modernization and economic development. Um, but I also, you know, in using that, I sort of also want to hint at the really serious divisions, you know, because I'm talking about a kind of public discourse that is remarkably similar across many different political actors in Iraq, but there's also real differences, you know, these women were demanding, like, the, literally, they're demanding mm -hmm. the heads be cut off of, um, of you know the traitors to the revolution. So the ways in which these differences really existed, and it was a it was a lot of conflict going on at this time. But then the differences you know in the public discourse kind of get submerged into the social reform uh, project, which all of the parties you know the Baathists, the Communists, the, um, the, well, the the other Arab Nationalist Party, which was the Independence Party, the National Democratic Party. Those were the four main political parties that were um, sort of supporting the the coup in the beginning. Um, they all, you know, in spite of all their differences, there was a really strong consensus about the need for social reform, the need to create a new kind of Iraqi who would be the agent of economic development. And so really what I, what I get at here is how that consensus is partly what enabled the, um, the depoliticization of the Iraqi public sphere um, that, you know, many historians, not just me, have seen as kind of laying the groundwork for the 1963 coup. Um, and so I want to I want to really you know think about how it was these ideas of social not not just them but the, mm -hmm. these ideas of social reform played a part in kind of all of the parties' participation in this project of, of demobilization. It's interesting. It's a theme that runs through the um, the different time periods you, when you're talking about kind of the reimagining or the relabeling of the women's march. You 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 said something quite similar about um, you know the early uprisings against the British become tribal or they become Shiite or that sort of thing. And, uh, and it, there never seems to be a fixity of what these are uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the, the, what their political demands are, uh, even who's participating or what it means that they, that they even succeed. Yeah, that's, yeah, and that's really interesting. Actually, I'm, for my second book, I'm, I wanna look more at this period in the 1920s, the 1920 revolt. Um, so yeah, it, I think the book is partly about that. You know, how, how can we think about and write about these uh, political movements and sort of socio-political you know, mobilizations that are happening throughout this time period, 1920s you know, to the 1960s, um, in ways that you know, don't just draw on sort of the, discourse, the official discourse or even the party discourse of each individual party. Because um, I think one of the problems in Iraqi uh, historiography has been this divide between um, kind of political history, and I would maybe include intellectual history in that mm -hmm. on the one hand, and then 
the you know widespread socio-political mobilization, subaltern mobilizations that are going on, which everyone knows, you know, we all know they're going on throughout this time period, but somehow there's not much um, communication or much analysis of how those different layers intersect with each other. So historians either focus on you know political history of the parties and the regimes, or or intellectual history of the ideas. Um, you know, and then the social political mobilizations appear now and then, but there hasn't been a lot of sort of compelling ways to think about those things in relation to each other. Mm -hmm. you know, even Batatu, who's this Marxist historian, um, you get a sense in the different sections of that book that he's always dealing with one or another of those things. Um, and they're not really, you know, analytically thought about together. So that's one thing I'm trying to do both in this book and now what I'm working on um, for the next book. Yeah, no, that, that really does come through, I think, in the way, in the way you put this, the different pieces together. Um, let me ask you just one more part of the book that we haven't really talked about yet, because this theme of development comes up, you know, repeatedly mm -hmm. throughout the book. And so you have that one short chapter on the, uh, the, the Adjela development, mm -hmm. um, yeah. it really does seem to encapsulate a lot of the, uh, the, the failures of this kind of developmental model. Just tell us a little bit about that and kind of how it fits into your broader narrative. Yeah. Thank you for asking about that. Cause on the one hand, that chapter is kind of the, the odd one out, you know, it's a different spatial and sort of social focus than the others. And on the other hand, as, as I think you just though. said, it's, yeah, it does in many ways, it's this really kind of literal material example of, <laughs> of a lot of the kind of arguments I'm making. Um, so in this chapter, I look at how uh, on this uh, settlement, uh, the Jujela Land Settlement Project, which was established in 1945, so right at the end of World War II, the beginning of what's often called the Age of Development, uh, was based on this idea of creating small fixed uh, family farms. Actually, they weren't super small, but that was the idea, it was to create family farms on fixed plots of land. Um, and then they, they gave the land to applicants who, were, um, who met various criteria. And, one, and the main criteria, or some of the main criteria, were that basically a nuclear family had to settle on it. You know, so the successful applicant had to be male, he had to be uh, middle-aged, I can't remember the exact ages, but you know, 20-something to 50 or something like that. Um, he had to have one child, at least one child, he had to be married, right? So, so they're settling on this land, this nuclear family, on this family farm. Family farms, of course, require intensive methods of agriculture, because you're working on a fixed, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not huge uh, plot of land. Um, Everyone knew at this time that if you're going to have intensive methods of agriculture, you need, um, and this is based on these new irrigation systems, you need a drainage system, right? If you newly irrigate land, especially in this region, and you don't have a drainage system, all the land will turn to salt. And they knew this. You know, they knew they had 20 years in the beginning and then 10 years and so on. Um, they didn't implement a drainage system because there were conflicts in Parliament and it's expensive and large landowners blocked it. There are various reasons. But what I was interested in is how, you know, why and how they implemented this project knowing full well that it was going to destroy the land land would turn to salt. Um, and then these family farms, uh, because they, they wanted, again, it was related to this project of depoliticization, they wanted to demobilize people. The farms had to be built um, one kilometer, each little group was built one kilometer from the next. So there were no villages, okay. which meant they couldn't get clean water to people, so people were getting sick and dying, and it was just a whole nightmare. I mean, it was an absolute disaster. Um, but I've, I'm, you know, for me, it was almost this uh, sort of, uh, kind of perfect example of the real material effects of this attachment to this family farm model um, as a sort of mode of governmentality, um, and literally in this case of fixing people in space um, in ways that led to social and ecological disaster in this case. Um, so again, thinking about how these future-oriented discourses, you know, family farms mm -hmm. or the, the, the farm, this is the agriculture of the future, and we're going to retrain people to, to be more productive and so on, and, and again, you know, home economics projects in the homes. This, these future-oriented discourses about the project 
were completely linked to this project that actually fixed people in space and made them sick and destroyed their land within 20 years. So, um, you know, and, and it's both very different from the rest of the book and um, kind of encapsulates uh, my argument. Um, and yet I didn't, I, I didn't find it an outlier though. I actually thought that it did encapsulate a lot of what you were trying to say. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to thank, I want to thank Sarah personally at NYU for joining us on the, uh, the Maps Middle East Books podcast. Uh, she's the author of Familiar Futures, Time, Selfhood, and Sovereignty in Iraq, just published by Stanford University Press. Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me.